Hi, I'm Jim Martin. Before we get started here on this month's Raw, I just want to put it out there that we are looking for support for Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. We've got a bunch of different offerings that we have. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox, wherever you want to put it, the Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention here on our Raw show. And um, we've built the shows on a model of some advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work. So I always like to say, think about what you get from a cup of coffee or a, you know, a juice or a pop or, or a monster drink, and then figure out how much that costs you. And then think about Adventure Rider Radio and Raw, what we're doing here um, and what you're getting from that. And maybe drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on the support button. We'd really appreciate it. We do need your support. Thanks very much. From the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the wilderness of Ontario, Canada, surrounded by less mosquitoes and black flies in the last times, and no see em. Uh, no see no no see em. No, no, no see em. No see em. No, no see em. This was the flawless edition. <laughs> it is July 2019, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and a bunch of other stuff that seems to get sidetracked all the time. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. This episode of Raw is brought to you in part by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. That's freshtracks.co.uk. Thank you very much, Fresh Tracks. My name's Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my esteemed regular Overland co-host. We're all here today. It is a is a full house. And I'm going to start with, with Graham Field because Graham was absent on the last one. Graham, good morning. Uh, good evening, Jim. It's 9.30 in the evening. Uh, I'm in the UK. And um, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about June. I'm not saying that because I want you to ask me about June. I'm genuinely not going to talk about it. It was an appalling month. Bad decisions, bad motorcycle rides, motorcycle accidents. It was horrific. June was just a shit month. I want to talk about July. I'm in the UK with my girlfriend, Galena, and her little six-year-old daughter, Radost. And yesterday, we went to London to do the Harry Potter tour. And uh, the adventure Harry Potter, obviously. And um, so anybody who's ever flown with Ryanair knows you can't really take any luggage with you because they charge you a load of money. That didn't really bother me. I knew I had some clothing here at my mum's in the dispatch department. So without thinking about it, before we left yesterday morning, I threw on one of my own Grainfield T-shirts and off we went to London. And the, I, I've read, I haven't read any Harry Potter, Harry Potter books and I've seen maybe two movies. And this is a tour of total Harry Potter aficionados. I mean, they were dressed up like him. They had the zigzag cross on the forehead. They've seen every movie, read every book, know every fact about J.K. Rowling. And... Uh, Halfway through the tour, I suddenly realised I'm wearing a T-shirt that says, "Ride the dream and don't read fiction." <laughs> and I thought, oh "My God, this is the biggest selling fiction book ever!" And I didn't do it to be like a juice or anything. You I just probably... wear the T-shirt. <laughs> well we'll come back to that but we're going to zip over to australia and talk with brian and shirley who who are in the morning so i can say good morning good morning it's very early it's still dark here jim ah yeah the old winter i know that's a tough one Uh, no no that's all right we're awake and i am deeply envious i would have loved to have done the harry potter tour 
Oh, I realised I really know to know a lot more about Harry Potter to enjoy it. I, I was a lot of it went over my head. Uh, they, they are fabulous books, and I had the joy of working on the publicity uh, as they each one was released uh, in Australia, and I was probably nearly as excited as the kids when the when they opened the box and we were able to take the first books out. Wow. The stats, though, Shirley, are amazing. I mean, she sold 450 million books. That means one in every 15 people on the planet has a Harry Potter book. And the, the figures were just astounding. Imagine if we sold <laughs> that many of our books. We wouldn't have to do this show anymore. <laughs> oh, I've, I've just got to slip a pun in here because it sounds like Graham was absolutely spellbound by the statistics. Oh. Oh. Sorry. It's so early <laughs> in the show. And Grant Johnson is also wide awake, bright-eyed, and bushy-tailed in British Columbia. I assume that uh, you're going to do the math. Oh, yeah, it's afternoon for you. Yes, it is afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Yep, we're just uh, getting organized for Can West Travelers Meeting, which is coming up this coming weekend, and the Mountain Madness, Hum Mountain Madness in the Monashies is the following weekend. So I'm getting organized for two events, and the weather's not looking good for tomorrow's ride out there. So I'm not not excited, but oh. it's been a while since I've been on the bike. So whether rain or shine. I'm going. I'm going to have a good ride. You're going to do it no matter what. You, you know, I, as you know, I'm in Ontario right now. And the weather since we've got here, I think, has just been stellar. It, it's been really hot. I mean, if you don't like hot weather, it isn't for you. But it's been really hot. But it's been just steady sunshine. I've been really, feel really good about this. I don't want to hear that because here <laughs> it's the opposite. The weather's so, been crap. <laughs> so by the time this comes out, the, the event will be done and we'll be able to, we'll yeah. know the result already. But is, is it forecast for lousy weather? No, the actual event, we've got good weather. It's the few days getting to it that are going to be crappy, but uh, the event itself should be fine. Oh, well, you're a biker. You can handle it, though. You just put on oh, your I know rain gear. I can. Because I remember you bragging about your rain gear. You said never gets wet. What is a rain gear? Yep. Rucka. Rucka. Rucka rain. I've got a new Rucka suit, too, which is really cool. This is designed, designed for off road. Why do you need a new one if, if the old one? Like, because, if, well, I'll be completely honest because they gave it to me. That's a good deal. <laughs> I thought that was a good deal. I was going to say, Grant, I, I couldn't afford Rucker stuff. It's gorgeous stuff. It's just absolutely, I think it's, it's quite frankly the best out there. I've been using it since the early, well, okay, let me be completely honest here. My very first Rucker suit was 1972, and it was absolutely waterproof. It didn't leak a drop, but it was a sweat magnet because it was vinyl. But it was incredibly dry, and it was really warm, too, for riding in the winter here. And here's the really bad part that I'll have to confess to. I still got it. <laughs> it's still there. I was going to say, now the truth comes out as to why um, Grant was whinging about having to move to a smaller house. Yes. Can you I'm imagine the things that he's got stashed away since 1972? Well, I yeah, bet you I still have a storage I, container, don't you? Uh, I have a storage locker. It's yeah. 10 feet by 10 feet by about 12 or 13 feet high, and it is absolutely full. Wow. You can get in. There's a couple of aisles, but it's all on shelves, and it's all organized, and it's all labeled, and you can get at it. But if you want something that's in the far back corner, you've got to first empty out the aisles. Then you got to get the ladder out. Then you got to climb up to the top and get what you're looking for. And, of course, when we loaded the locker, it it was loaded fairly quickly. So things weren't really thought through as to where is the best location for that versus that. Mm. 
So I had to get some camping gear out yesterday and it took me about half an hour to get at it, but I got it. <laughs> That's when you find it a couple of years later that all that weight you put on top crushed those bottom boxes of the paint you were storing. Nah, it's all on shelves. Oh, it's, it's on shelves. It's all shelving. Yeah, yeah. D- is yeah, that supplied? Vacuum. It's ridiculous. No, you got to buy it. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a good way to no, do it. You're, I've you're had pretty it organized. Well, it's either be organized or stuff it all into a locker in a giant pile and don't touch it again for about five years. And then you say, well, I haven't touched it in five years, so I'll just torch it all. Mm. Or maybe not torch it, but. Well, that's the thing with storage lockers, I was going to say, is that don't you find that sort of universally people get storage lockers, throw a bunch of stuff in there, and then really never do anything but pay the monthly storage on it. It's just crap that you hang on to because it's too valuable to get rid of and ends up costing you a fortune in the long run. Yeah, don't uh, talk to me about that. I've had that experience. We spent a number of years, 10 years overall in the UK, and had a storage locker here in Canada holding all my crap. Yeah. The storage companies love you for that. Oh, yeah, they do. They do. Absolutely. On the other hand, you know, replacing a lot of that stuff, and, and we've changed continents. Let me think. Moved to Australia, moved to Singapore, back to the U.S. for briefly, to U.K., to Canada, to U.K., to Canada. I, I lost count how many that was, but it's a few. So we've we've shipped across continents and all that, and shipping stuff is expensive. Storing it's expensive. But replacing it is staggeringly expensive. Yeah, that, we, we've downsized and got rid of stuff, and, and, I, and I have regretted it with some of the stuff. I mean, it's, it's kind of nice. It is nice. I shouldn't say kind of. It's great to get rid of your stuff and really clean things out. It simplifies your life. But there are some things that I wish I'd managed to hold on to, which I didn't, and I've had to replace. And, yeah, it gets expensive. Or you don't do it at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just going through um, looking at cleaning up my shed, and I've got stuff that's older than 1972 in there. And I think, yeah, if I throw that out, oh, I might need that. Oh, I might need that. You guys keep oh, mentioning could come in handy. 1972, yeah, no. that's so long ago. <laughs> yeah, before you were born, right? It's before I was born, yeah. Because I'm yeah, only, right. only 38 uh, now. <laughs> I want to jump back to, to Graham Field. So I'm curious about like like d- digging deeper into the, the month of June. Why? What, there was some sort of major thing that happened here. I know nothing about it. Just well, between us. There was a load of stuff, and I didn't really want to talk about it, but if you ask one more time, I will. No, okay. I'm not going to push. So moving we on, we've got... Uh, <laughs> we could have been <laughs> over here. <laughs> good one. <laughs> so we've uh, we've got a couple of good topics today that uh, that we're going to discuss, and the, and the first one's kind of nice because it has, all right, what happened in June? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do on your holiday? <laughs> well... I went to Chernobyl to do the Chernobyl tour because I've been reading an awful lot about this whole Chernobyl thing that happened in 86. And having booked a tour, prepaid for a tour, I rode 2,000 kilometres to Ukraine, booked an expensive hotel specifically so that I could leave my bike safe and my stuff safe while I went on the two-day Chernobyl tour and stay a night in Chernobyl, only to find out when I got there that they came out with a plethora of excuses. We don't have your passport details. We didn't know you were coming. We haven't got enough people for the tour. You never actually confirmed it. And any other bullshit they could come up with and basically wasted 2,000 kilometres there, 2,000 kilometres back, wasted hotel money, wasted tyres, chains, sprockets and everything else I spent to get there. So I rode back home and then had to head on collision with a stone driver with my motorcycle and broke my bike. But apart from that, June was fantastic. Wow. 
So, I'm actually glad you asked, Jim. <laughs> well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so how did you have a head on collision? Is that your fault or theirs? I was riding on the little, uh, I wasn't going to talk about this, but as soon as you're prying me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're bursting. I was a little 10 minutes. Str- oh, so the weekend before, um, to redeem the entire trip that went totally wrong, me and my girlfriend went to a beautiful, and it was beautiful, stunning part of Bulgaria, uh, which I'd never seen before, with a wonderful, wide, fast-flowing river down a deep canyon. The only sounds were croaking frogs and tweeting birds and running water. There wasn't any sign of civilization, any noise of civilization. It was absolute tranquility and beauty and wonderful. And probably if there was a downside, there wasn't a downside. But if it was, it was probably Galena wondering why I insisted on her wearing all the hot and uncomfortable bike clothes when she when we rode the bike, which I explained were for her own safety in the event of an accident. Of course, we didn't have an accident. However, a few days later, I took my bike out for a little 10 minute ride and wasn't wearing all the gear all the time. And on a bit of road, I know like the back of my hand because it's only 10 minutes away from where I live. A car overtook into my path. That happens all the time in Bulgaria. Not that big of a deal. And uh, pulled in. And then another car pulled into my path, right into my path. And having seen me, decided it wasn't going to pull back into the line of traffic it came out of, but was going to stop right in my path. And not on the side of the oncoming traffic, but on the side of the curb. So my only escape route, obviously I don't want to ride into the oncoming traffic, I don't want to go directly into him, my only escape route is to the right and onto the verge, but he blocked that because he braked directly in front of me. And so I hit him and um, bike went down, I went down and uh, very long story short, I'm not going to judge anybody by the way they look or the way they dress, but I would just think when the police came, if you're going to do an alcohol test on both of us, would you not also do a drug test, particularly when the driver whose actions were non-reactions has dreadlocks down to his waist, the kind of clothes and facial hair and slit eyes of someone who might possibly have once in his life quite recently have smoked quite a significant amount of weed. And so I um, was a little bit angry and uh, the fact that I he nearly took my life with his ridiculous reactions and uh, and wrecked my bike. And uh, it was only by pure bloody luck that I am still here to sit and bitch and moan about my miserable June month. Wow. Well, uh, thankfully uh, just, you're just, safe. Just, I mean, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Uh, did, did you hit a stationary car? Right. He braked like hell. I braked like hell. He said he'd stopped. Maybe he had, maybe he didn't. Uh, but there was impact. Um, I've got ABS. It was on the Triumph Tiger. I didn't lock up my wheels. Uh, uh, but there was still impact because because the impact when my bike hit his car. It, I'm shaking now talking about it. When I hit his car, I, my bike bounced back. That's why the bike went down. But it was one lane in each direction. There was nowhere for me to go. When someone's coming towards you, when they've pulled out from oncoming traffic, the assumption is when they've seen you, they're going to pull back into the traffic that they pulled out of, not stop 
in your path. So what happened with the police? Are they saying it's, it's your fault or his fault? Oh, well, thankfully, it was not far from your girlfriend's house. And um, again, this is a super long story. And there was five hours of uh, processing and everything else. And I've learned an awful lot about Bulgarian law, Bulgarian insurance. Um, I've pretty much already summed up Bulgarian drivers. Uh, and I'm not putting the country down. I live there and I love it. And I've always known that the driving standards are very, very low. And and every time you go out, there is a near miss because you can't really have assumption because there are really no, there, there's, there's no common sense. Everybody overtakes everybody all the time, regardless. And if you leave a gap in front of you and the vehicle in front of you, it's only for the car behind you to overtake you and move into. Not because they want to continue overtaking, just because it's a gap and they can be that much closer. That's just the mentality. That's just a culture thing. That's what you're dealing with. So I appreciate that. And if I keep my bloody-minded English mentality and sort of road rage, then you will try and close up that gap. But that the Bulgarians don't do that. When they see someone overtaking who they know is going to pull in front of them because it's an oncoming vehicle, they make the gap bigger. And that's the way you drive. It's kind of a gracious way of accepting the morons who overtake in stupid places. So you you copy, you replicate, you blend in. So I'm not opposed to that. It's not the way I would drive, but it's the way they drive and I have to accept it because I've moved to their country. What I am opposed to is absolutely total idiotic behaviour and a complete non-reaction to a very drastic and potentially lethal situation and that's what really bloody angered me okay you need to breathe now just take a minute and just breathe <laughs> another glass of wine Graham make it a big one he's had a well, couple of those already you today. are so lucky we are so lucky that that you're yeah. still here wow that's, well, that's um, the other thing actually that Jim is pissing me off is that everybody keeps telling me how fucking lucky I am there's no luck didn't enter into well, it well no it's, it's not luck I don't believe in luck at all I mean it's, it's happenstance but I mean it's great the way it turned out because um, it could have turned out much different I mean I mean, it, you know even not death it could have turned out a lot different right so in a way you can look at it that way and all this bloody hippie kept talking about bearing in mind that some people may label me under the same genre, but we're saying, oh, well, accidents happen all the time and, you know, nobody was hurt. It's like nobody was hurt. <laughs> what what nationality was he, Graham? He was Bulgarian, but he spoke really oh. good English. So you said he had, he had long dreadlocks. You have long hair. Yeah, I know. I know. And I don't want to judge someone by the way they look because that would be a total hypocrisy. But you just think... That, well, I mean, what would a dreadlock say to you? Do they not say that you're perhaps in favour of the herb? You know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I just think it's a style. But but no, I was thinking. I was going to say for the for the cop coming up, he actually may see no difference to him. Some you know long haired hippie type uh, is a long haired hippie type. He might just look at you and think, uh, or she might, whoever showed up, and look at you two and both see you as the same. Yeah. Yeah, but in my emergency pack, I carry a ponytail tie. <laughs> <laughs> well, he should have spotted that. No, I had it hidden away carefully. Sleeves down, <laughs> tattoos hidden. I look like a perfectly respectable member of society. Oh, you can do that. Oh, I always think that's really cool when you can pull that off. You tuck everything out of the way and cover everything up and look normal. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a bit of effort, but that's okay. <laughs> So you're stereotyping yourself then, Graham? Yeah, in a way. 
I mean, because I'm, I'm not saying do a drug test on him. I'm saying don't drug test on both of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, like, so does it look like that you, you might be partially at fault or something? Yeah. Wow. That is unbelievable. It's because what Brian said, isn't it? Is he's claiming he stopped. So you hit a stop vehicle. Oh, this is, this is very complicated. Let's, let's move on to this. <laughs> well, I, I feel for that's question. We, We've been asking about you, but what about your bike? Oh, okay. Right. So the bike went down on the left-hand side. It did a bit of damage. And, um, then it turns out what you do is you, you, well, firstly, I mean, the, the thing is, right, he's all, oh, well, no one was hurt. Accidents happened every day. Everything was fine. I can't understand why you're so aggressive and why you're so angry, man. And I said, well, because you nearly took me life away from me with your idiotic non-reaction to your ridiculously dangerous overtaking manoeuvre. And then what you can't put a price on is how that thought goes through your head repeatedly like a loop tape. We've talked about accidents before, and I talked about my scariest accent before. I've got a new scariest accent. So now, every time my eyes flicker open on the pillow in the morning, I just re-enact the, the scenario. And so now I can't get on my bike. For like three weeks now, every time I think about it, this just thing repays in my head, in my head. And you can't, you can't, you can't, there's no compensation for that. There's no understanding of that. All that I can hope is like all the films I've read, the books I've read, the experience I've gained, after some time I'll forget them and it will all be fresh again. But at the moment, that is just a memory that keeps replaying in my head and he's just oblivious to it, surrounded by his impact bars and his airbags. He has no concept of what it's like to see an oncoming vehicle coming at you through a visor when you're vulnerable and, and totally in the right as well. Mm. So you know, I totally get why you're, you're angry about it for sure. I would be too. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's a totally different perspective. And, and even for him, probably the car is not a big deal. You know, it's uh, I, I don't know what oh, kind of daddy car. Daddy gave it to him. It turns out daddy gave it to him, but he didn't put it in his name. So he's got to have a fine before not putting it in his name. He also had some other fines, which he eventually paid, but because he paid them late, he had fines for not paying his fines and he hadn't paid the fines for not paying his fines. So, when the police processed us all, it turns out he has a bunch of fines for not returning daddy's car into his name and various other things. I, by the way, self-righteous, was totally, totally legit and legal and alcohol-free and drug-free and in the right. But so there was a whole list of, of misdemeanors on his side, but that doesn't seem to sort of calculate or, or, or equate to the fact that quite possibly... Why, why would all those be? Why did he forget all those things? Why is he such an inept and inactive and useless human being? Perhaps we should do a drug test. But no, they didn't. Oh, mate, you've got to get back on that horse. You've got to get back on that bike, mate. Yeah, I will. I will. But at the moment, I'm sort of, you know, thinking about Harry Potter and broomsticks, you know, might be a bit safer. <laughs> <laughs> Good plan. <laughs> well, I, again, I, Graham, I, we're really happy that it turned out the way it did for you, um, that you're fine. That's, I mean, I assume you are fine, right? No damage? Oh, not really. No, a little little bit mentally and a little cut on my wrist, but yeah, no, I'm fine. Yeah, because you have repeated yourself three times there in a loop. I just wanted to mention that. No, I just, just said a little bit mentally and a little cut on my wrist, but apart from that, Jim, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, because you just did repeat yourself there, I think about three times, but I just want to mention that. Did I mention that. the cut on the wrist? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so um, for, for, for our first thing that we're going to talk about today, we, um, we're talking about times when you're traveling and find yourself in over your head. Now, what we're curious about with this is how did you deal with it? What was the, what was the result? And what did you learn from it? You know, do you have a, a certain method for dealing with this? Do you have a certain way that, or maybe a, a person that you get on the phone or I don't know, is, is there some sort of way? Cause one thing that comes to mind, I remember somebody saying just not long ago, it was Tiffany Coates who said um, she went through her methods for border crossing. And she says in the end, what she does, she starts, she starts crying and, and she says, amazing what you can get done as a woman. If you start crying at the border crossing, <laughs> you know, I'm curious, do you guys have sort of those? I mean, you know, Graham, were you crying and, you know, to, to, to get through a border at one point? Um, so no, I've got two stories, but let's go, let's let someone else speak and then I'll come in later. <laughs> Sam, how about you, Sam? You've been sitting there really quiet with your, sitting on your hands, I can tell. Oh, um, me? Sitting on my hands? No way. I've sitting with my hands around a large gin and tonic. You uh, drank all, time the, all the stuff you had before? What was the other stuff you had? Oh, I had um, pear schnapps last time. Yeah, what, you drank the, all of that? Oh yeah, that's long gone. And I finished the um, the last of the moonshine that I brought back from West Virginia, which is a real shame because it was very, very nice. So I'm being terribly English th- this evening um, and I've got a, a pint of gin and tonic in front of me. Mm. Wow. A pint? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Don't do nothing by halves, mate. I tell you what, I've, I've been hiking up on um, Dartmoor and so I, I need the lubrication. It's a, a hot and sunny, um, stride out sort of day today. So, yeah, I've earned it. I was looking for your your time when you were in over your head. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. I sidetracked this, didn't I? Um, well, actually, yeah, which one? Um, it took me a long time to work out which ones to talk about. And the first one um, is a tale of greed and stupidity. Um, it's, uh, it, the scene is set in Zimbabwe. And um, at the time I was there... Um, the black market was offering six times the rate uh, um, that the bank was for pound sterling. And so everybody was using the black market. It was just a no-brainer. But I got malaria, didn't I? And it was a really bad dose of malaria, and it took me a long time to get over it. And long story short, I was lucky to be alive at the end of it. And it was only down to two other traveling friends who had um, had an accident ridden their bike off the side of a cliff and had hitchhiked back to this camping site um, with their bike and they found me and just thought wow look at the state of you anyway long story short um, they eventually move on but by the time I'm well enough to actually start moving around I've run out of money and I'm faced with um, go and stand for hours in the queue at the bank and be legal or find um, something on the black market and there were no other travellers on the camping site at this particular time. Just nobody. It was almost like you know, the, 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 the aliens had been and snapped everybody up. Now, I didn't recognise how weak I was and therefore how vulnerable I was. But the black market guys that I hunted out did. Um, I was shown into a dark room um, by one man. Um, who introduced me to a man behind the desk and he was rather smart and um, looking pretty clean cut and um, square jawed and all of the rest of it. And we dickered about um, changing 20 pounds, which is um, about 240 US dollars in um, today's um, time, um, if you had the, the six times exchange rate. So for me, that was um, a month's living money plus. 
Anyway, the man behind the desk took the money and um, told me that we had to wait for the man with the Zimbabwe dollars to come. So we sat and 10 minutes went by, 15 minutes went by and there was a knock on the door. Another man entered the room and um, I thought, good, um, here's the man with the dollars. Anyway, he went over and he whispered in the ear of uh, the man behind the desk. And I thought, oh, this is this is a little bit sus, but I'm not firing on all cylinders. Um, he then stood up and turned around and left. Ten minutes more, with me think, still thinking that the man behind the desk had still had my money. Mm-hmm. Now, sleight of hand, the man who had whispered in his ear had palmed the money and left. So another 10 minutes go by, and I'm now beginning to feel very uncomfortable about this situation. And the guy behind the desk is just looking at me with this big smug smile on his face and then tells me he needs to go for the toilet and to stay where I am. And uh, he says, oh, and by the way, um, the boys outside, they'll make sure you don't leave until um, you have your money. And I'd seen the boys outside on the way in. And yeah, big, ugly, muscly um, you don't want to meet these guys down the dark alleyway type of guys. So, of course, I waited until um, I just thought, I've, I've got to leave. And when I eventually went out the door, there was nobody there. And, of course, my money was long gone too. <sighs> the sobering thing was that that £20 was the equivalent to um, a retired captain from the Tanzanians Army Army's pension for a whole year. So that sort of put it into perspective. And in a way, when I was thinking about it afterwards, um, I thought, well, yeah, you were stupid. You sh- there's no way you should have been doing that when you weren't firing on all cylinders. And you weren't firing on all cylinders because you didn't realise that you weren't firing on all cylinders, if you're with me. Um, so so you shouldn't have but, went in with that much money, right? Like What you did is you went in with way too much money. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I should have gone in with a five pound note and not a 20 pound note. Right. And I should have just tested the water and just given myself a few more days to, um, to get straight before, um, hunting things out like this. Um, but you know, it was, it was quite a good lesson to, to learn because every time I changed money in any country on the black market, I was so much more aware of what was going on. And the one simple rule, you don't hand your money over until you've got, the money that you're changing for in the other hand yeah that so, sucks yes yeah. yep but hey um, it didn't kill me i didn't die i was embarrassed um i went back to my tent and went to sleep and when i woke up in the morning i thought idiot um and then found some other place to change some money so it was all right but yeah i was way over the top of my head in this situation and it could have got very nasty um, it was a good job that I was sick because if I hadn't been, then I might have got angry, and if I'd got angry, I might have got get, got dead. So, so when you're you're sitting in the room and he says the the guys are sitting outside, what what's your thought process? What was your plan? Oh well, I had no plan at all. Um, I just was not mentally joining the dots enough to be able to make a plan. Um, I mean, part of me for a few moments thought, well, actually. If I run at the door and slam it open, kind of just leg it out the other side, um, then I can escape from these guys. And then I, I, I might as well have been drunk because I was giggling, giggling to myself because I could hardly walk. I'm blooming well run, so that wasn't going to work. 
<laughs> so it was just it was literally just a case of hey mate you know you've you've made a mistake you're over the top of your head you might as well just take it steady and be calm and easy about it and see what happens if you do something really stupid now like get angry or start shouting and banging things and so on well then you're just going to drop yourself in it um, and i think that was the lesson for me when you find yourself in the over the head you might as well be calm about it and just get out of it with um yeah get out of it with your life yeah wow Wow, so did it take you a long time to be able to tell that story to anyone else? Um, it probably did, actually. Um, because well, I, was, I, did, I didn't see any other travelers anyway, so there wasn't anybody to tell to. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I mean, we all do stupid things and we don't necessarily talk about them to everybody. And I suppose that was partly in my mind. But I was very philosophical about it. Um, it was stupid. I'd been stupid, and I was lucky to get away with the situation without it going pear-shaped. Yeah. Um, yeah. A similar thing happened to us um, with being unwell and going into a, a, a situation where you really needed to have your head together. When we were crossing um, at Lake Titicaca doing a border crossing, and the local police said to us, well, you'll need insurance. And Brian said, yes, I know that. Um and we've been looking for the insurance office. And he said, oh, I've got the insurance paperwork here. And he gave us a, a, an official-looking document that, as they say in the classics, wasn't worth the paper it was written on. <laughs> and that was because Brian's uh, Brian was off his game. I had um, really bad altitude sickness, and he was more concerned about getting me somewhere where I could lie down again yeah. rather than being on a bike. And uh, we left the border with this um, very official looking document and within a few kilometers we were pulled up by the police who said you haven't got insurance and they wanted us to pay for insurance then and there on the spot and Brian um, just talked his way out of that and we got another couple of kilometers down the road and the same thing happened again so it was obviously a scam that they hit people at the border and then they fine you along the road mm -hmm. every, every time they stop Classic. you. Classic. Classic. And it, we were just lucky that um, Brian was able to talk our way out of it, really. How did, how, Brian, well, how did you do that? Well, what I said was, well, firstly, yes, I was off my game, and we paid a fair bit of money for this piece of um Paper, which I was about fifty US dollars. So I think, yeah, that's a bit expensive, but okay. okay. And uh, when we got pulled up the first time, um, they wanted to fine me for not having insurance, and I said, "I don't believe you." This document was handed to me by the police. They said, "Oh, no, it must have been someone at the immigration." I said, no, it was a police officer. And, and the one thing I didn't do was take a photo, and I should have taken a photo. But I said, I want to see your boss, your superior. I want to talk to your superior because this was done by the police at the border. And as soon as I said that, you go, you go, you go. Mm -hmm. I did oh. that twice. And uh, when we got to the town, it was uh, a weekend. I can't quite remember the name of the town. Uh, and we couldn't get insurance. Um, so what I did was just parked the bike at the uh, little uh, B&B we were staying at. And on the Monday, we went and got the insurance. I think it was something like $18. I don't think it was even that much. <laughs> <laughs> so we just, went to, we just went to a, an insurance office, like a tourist bureau office, and bought the insurance, and we were fine from that point on. But it's a scam, absolute scam, and they must have radioed or, or telephoned ahead. 
each time to say, oh, here's some bunnies coming along the road. So, yeah, I, I suppose. It can happen to the best of yeah. us and you just have to add it down as one of life's experiences. And, you know, Sam, you lost 20 quid, which was a lot of money to you at the time, and 50 US dollars wasn't exactly um, throwaway money for us. Kind of, four tanks of petrol. But it gives you it gives you a, another story to tell. Oh, and absolutely. Anyone can make a mistake like that, particularly and, uh, when you're unwell. That's exactly right, isn't it? And, and when you're travelling... Um, you have to do things when you're unwell. You've got no choice because you still have to survive. You still have to, to, to make your way, even if it's to get the money, for example, to put food on the table in front of you. You've still got to do it. Um, and just because you're under the weather doesn't mean that you can back off from it. You have got to yeah. get on with it. I mean, you guys, for example, your visa might have been running out, so you had to cross the border yeah, into the new to, country. We had, to keep, we had to keep moving. And you trust police. Ha, 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 laugh out loud when you're overseas, but you always think that, that someone in a uniform is a trustworthy person. Depends on what country you're in. Chile, yeah, exactly. Police yeah, are yeah. excellent. Very yeah, excellent. That, that, that's, yeah. that's exactly right. And, you know, uh, I, I think um, as you get older, and Sam, you said it, you don't hand money over now without making sure you've seen or got hold of the other money. <laughs> You learn from your experiences. And as you get older, when this topic came up, I'm thinking, you know, as we've got older, we've really honed our skills fairly well to avoid those sort of instances um, where, you, um, where you're in over your head. Illness does knock you, though, doesn't it? Because you aren't firing on all cylinders. Yeah. Illness and alcohol and being too tired. Those three things are really dangerous, aren't they? Well, there goes the entire travelling experience. Are either very, very tired or drunk or sick, really? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the five stages of grief, isn't it? They're the three stages of travelling. <laughs> I don't think I want to travel with you two. No, definitely not. I don't know. I always find if I'm really sick, I try and find the best hotel in town, or at least a good hotel, because trying to stay in a campground when you're really sick. It's just too hard. But if you're in a decent hotel, first of all, they don't want you dying in their room. So they're probably going to keep an eye on you. They, you get room service and you can get, uh, to get the room cleaned occasionally. And you can just concentrate on getting well instead of trying to deal with a whole lot of problems. If you need money, you can say to, say to the hotel, here's 20 pounds sterling. I need, some, I need to be able to pay you guys. Figure it out. You know, there, there's ways around it. If you're in a decent location, and I, I always think that's really, really important. So when we first land in a new country completely, we try and find a, a good hotel for our first night there to kind of make sure we're organized. We've got all our act together. We've got our paperwork started and then head off and do the cheap hotels and B&Bs and whatever else and campgrounds that's available. But sometimes you got to spend the money just because it's a whole lot safer, easier, less stress, better for your health, et cetera. I agree. First night in a new country, at least a half-decent hotel, just yeah. to assess everything, just to find your feet and figure out everything. Um, sometimes that, that that's not spending money, that's saving money. Yeah. I remember that's we nice. went from um, uh, from Italy to um, Tunisia, and we were looking on the internet, which was there, but not very good, and we found out that the Sheraton in Tunis um, – I think it was Hammamet, Tunis. Anyway, they had a really special deal. We thought, wow, that looks that looks really cheap. It was like 20 bucks 
per night. And we get there and figure this is great. And it was a wonderful hotel. The uh, breakfast spread was, I've never seen a breakfast spread as good as this anywhere. It was absolutely amazing. You wanted some fresh orange juice? Yep. He pulls out a couple of oranges and he squeezes it on the spot for you. Wonderful. 20 bucks a night. You know, it, uh, a good hotel doesn't have to be expensive if you're traveling off season or doing something unusual. Uh, so don't be afraid to check out the decent places. You never know what kind of a deal you find anyway. I thought you were going to say that uh, you found out when you got your bill, it was a lot more. That's where I thought you were going with that. But um, No, no, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was one of, one of the great experiences traveling. The hotel was great. We stayed there another couple of nights just because it was so nice and relaxing and lovely. We could do a little touring from the area. It was great. Well, well how about we you, did- Grant, as far as um, a situation where you got in, in your over your head? Well, that was kind of where it started because we were in Tunisia and we had to go to Egypt next. So we had to go through Libya. And this was 1996. And Libya was, well, we all remember what Libya was like then. I mean, everybody said that's the place where they have all the terrorist camps and it's, it's a terrible place and it's really dangerous and there's no way on earth you should go there. Americans weren't even allowed to go there, period. It was a real problem. But how else are you going to get to Egypt? So we thought, hmm, well, okay. So we went to the Libyan embassy in Tunis, had a conversation with them. So we were, I mean, we were at this point very, very nervous. This was a, we've got to do this. We haven't got a lot of choice. We're not going back to Europe to try and go around the other way. It's just too hard. We're going to go through Libya. We hear it's not impossible. Um, We hear it's dangerous, so we're really nervous. But okay, so they gave us the visa. But they said, you must be escorted all the way from, you would be picked up at the border and you would be dropped off at the Egyptian border. You must go with this tour company. They must stay with you at all times and they will arrange everything. Okay. This was um, $100 a day. Remember, this is a few years ago. So $100 a day was not cheap. Uh, So we thought, okay. So yeah, we were duly met at the border. Everything was fine. Did all the paperwork. And uh, we had to follow them all the way into Tripoli, following a four by four. Uh, got into Tripoli, and then we said, "Okay, we're going to take you on a tour." Oh, we weren't expecting a tour. We were wanting to just kind of go on a wander and do our own thing. And you can follow us along if you want, but no, nope, we're going on a tour. Hmm. Okay, where are we going? Gadams. Where's Gadams? Well, this is at the bottom of uh, Libya, um, just across the border from there. Very close is Algeria and. Tunisia. So you're right at the junction of three countries there. Very interesting, wonderful place, great tour, except that all the way we were thinking, are we going to be taken out into the terrorist camps and used for target practice? <laughs> it's a valid <laughs> thought, isn't it? <laughs> it was definitely a valid thought. I mean, we did, we had no idea. Uh, they did. We finally found out that uh, when we started going, that there was going to be a Swiss couple and um, a French guy, I think. And they didn't have to be escorted. Only us had to be escorted. <laughs> These other guys, they were they were wandering all over Libya doing just fine all on their own. You know, well, hmm, you know, the thought in the back of your mind is, well, they're just collecting up the foreigners to take them to the terrorist camp to use for target practice. <laughs> Who knows? We had no idea. This is the whole thing. So you're always nervous. You're, you're just, eh, I think it's okay. I think it's okay. They seem like good guys. You know, they seem friendly and everything seems fine in the back of your mind it's just going zzz, you know the, the little lizard brain is very nervous um, so anyway we did the tour it was great 
no problems. That's a situation though, where that's not so much you got into something and had to get out of it. What you did is took a blind leap of faith. You, you thought we could end up dead and there's a, there's a real possibility. I don't know what percentage you would put on that, but you sort of thought, okay, we're going to give over to this because why? I don't know. I don't even know why, because you thought maybe you weren't right. (laughs) That maybe it was, (laughs) I mean, think about it. It's a pretty, it's a pretty big risk. Yeah. But I think at some point, one of the things we had learned was you do have to take some risks and you go in your gut. And when we met the guy at the border, if he'd given us a really bad vibe, we would just turn around. Forget it. We're not going. Um, but he seemed okay. He spoke very good English. Uh, turned out that he speaks seven languages fluently. His mother was the um, Belgian ambassador to Libya. So he was Libyan Belgian and he'd, spent some time in Europe and lived there and you know, everything was seemed very cool. So we thought, okay, this is fine. We'll go with it. See how it is. Um, but you know, you do take some risks and you, I mean, every time you get on your motorcycle, you know that the risks of getting splattered are higher than if you took the car, mm, but you do it anyway. Right? <laughs> it's back it, to life. How far were you into your trip when, when you did this, when you ran into this, this situation? Well, we'd done Central America and we'd done all of Europe. So you, you did a fair bit of traveling. So did, did this change the way you felt at all? Did, like after having this, this experience, did you sort of come out of it, you know, with that, that touchy-feely, you know, feeling of, hey, the world's a great, better better place than what I thought? Well, certainly it, it, it improved our attitude. But I think I should have just mentioned one thing before. Um, one of the experiences we had in Tunisia that made us more willing to be open to these possibilities was we were standing on a corner in some small town. I can't remember where it was down in the desert. And the guy came up to us and started talking to us in in excellent English, just asking, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? You mean, you don't look like you belong here, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, turned out he was an English teacher and he ended up inviting us to his home to have dinner with his family. And we were kind of a little nervous you know, same kind of thing, you know, what's going on here? You know, do we trust this guy or not? And we finally decided, sure, he seems okay. Trust him. And we went with him and we had a wonderful evening. We met his wife and the kids and, you know, all that and sat down and um, on your uh, squatting on the floor, no chairs and having this traditional Tunisian meal. It was wonderful. Uh, A really good experience. And it was all because we had said, Okay, this feels okay. Let's trust somebody. It was great. So I think that was that made us really feel, you know, it is okay to trust people, but trust your gut first. You know, Grant, some some of this this come into my mind a number of times. We talked, and I, and I just always miss the opportunity to ask. So I'm going to jump in now. You, you're you're fairly, um, I don't know, I think you've used the word anal before about, about some things. <laughs> so, so, you know, when you started out way back when you, before you went on your trip to when you're into your trip, say here, was there a huge change for you? Like, did you start out being, you know, maybe more paranoid, untrusting with everything and then sort of completely changed? Because you've got obviously a very open attitude now about traveling and obviously you know so much about it, et cetera. But was there a massive change from the grant back then to the, the traveled grant? I'm not sure that there was so much a massive change as much as an awareness that people are even better than you think. Um, when we went to Central America for the first time, we hit Mexico. And to be honest, 
we were clueless. We had no idea. You know, from Canada in those days, you really didn't hear much about Mexico. All you knew was that's where they wore sombreros and you could get tacos. You know, that was about it. The, the amount of news you hear now about how dangerous Mexico is, et cetera, et cetera, you just didn't hear that. So we kind of went and Mexico should be fine. And it was. It was great. We really enjoyed Mexico. Um, we spent – we left on the last day of our visa. I was sick of the dog. Could hardly stand, much less ride. But we – last day of our visa, so I had to ride. Um, so that was not a good memory. But we did it, and it was great. Central America, well, we were in Central America during the Contra Wars. We were pulled over in the middle of nowhere in Honduras by a bunch of soldiers that jumped out. Well, maybe they were soldiers. I don't know if they were soldiers or not now. They jumped out of the bushes and held us at machine gun point. You learn, you know, that was actually okay. It was a fun, interesting experience. It was really scary when they first jumped out. I mean, oh, my God. They got 20 machine guns pointed at us and a bunch more standing around watching. But all they wanted to know was, who are you and why are you here? You're crazy. Mm. But that well, could also maybe. have turned yeah. out different too. 20 machine guns sure. and 20 fingers on the trigger. All it takes is somebody to have a hiccup and, and next thing you know, you're just on the side of the road. Yeah, it all, that's always a possibility. But then, like we were just talking about crazy drivers, um, I saw instances of stupidity yesterday and the day before and the day before, all of which could have been fatal for somebody. You just never know. You have to get out there and live life. Or you can stay at home, stay in your bedroom, and never leave it and not have a life. And if you're really unlucky, like a guy in Florida, a sinkhole could open up underneath you and suck your bedroom right down into the sinkhole and you're never seen again while the other people in the house are still fine. Or you, might just, or you might just die of boredom. <laughs> or you might just die of boredom. I mean, what is the point of life if it's not to live it and enjoy it and have fun and have interesting experiences and meet wonderful people and live life? And oh, gamble it and do everything in your power to ensure that you don't have to claim the pension that you never paid into because you're on the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're all in the same boat as far as that goes, the same thought process. But the thing is with that is, I mean, it, it sort of varies right from the very mundane or the or the die, you know, of boredom right on up to the people who, I don't know, who do the flying suits. Maybe maybe there's something even more dangerous than that. And they fly through oh, the rocks. I, I mean, to me, that's, that's insane. To the next person, are you kidding? That's the funnest thing that, that that's living every second you're doing it. So, I mean, it's a, I don't think that's a question that really can be answered or you know, quantified yeah. for anybody. It's, it's something Sadly. you have to know yourself. Yeah, if those wingsuits had been invented 40 years ago or so, I'd be up there, trust me. Well, that says something, doesn't Don't it? Work. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you find travel, it broadens the mind. You know, one, totally. one thing that really gets up my, my skirt this is, is people who don't travel and have, have all this this stuff about uh, Iran, for example, and how bad Iran, Iran is. Those of us that have been through those countries, it's the people who are just fantastic. And, you know, travel travel broadens your mind. And I get sick and tired of people on Facebook saying, uh, making these broad statements about um, uh, people in countries like Iran and places like that. And they've never been there, never done that, never experienced it. And all they're doing is uh, running off from what's in the media. Yeah. You know, they, they actually have no clue. We held an event in Mexico a number of years ago, and it was, I don't know, four or five hours from the U.S. border. 
and the Rebrugs that we're talking about, let's get together at the border and we'll go down in a group, safety in numbers. Why? There's no risk. This is fine. It's perfectly okay. It's a good road. It's fine. I rode down there solo, didn't have a blink. There's no problem. It's the media blows everything up. We were in Nairobi when there was um, apparently reported on the news, Nairobi is rioting. There's rioting in the streets everywhere. It's really dangerous. And we got an email from my mother. Are you guys okay? Are you okay? Because she knew we were in Nairobi. And I said, uh, yeah, what, what are you talking about? And she said, well, there's all this rioting. It's reported on the news in Vancouver. Well, we never saw anything. And we asked around about it. And most people had no clue what they're talking about. And one guy said, oh, yeah, there was a bunch of guys drunk. And they had a bit of a kerfuffle on uh, some street corner somewhere. And people got dragged away to the jail. That was it. But it was news. It was the big news. It's crazy. Well, but you, if you were on you that street corner, ask. to be fair, that was that was wild. Yeah, <laughs> but I can tell you, <laughs> your odds of being on that street corner aren't very high. You wouldn't ask somebody who's never ridden a motorbike, is it safe to ride a motorbike? So don't ask somebody who's never been to a country or take the advice of someone who's never been to a country if it's safe there. Speak to someone who's been there because they know what it's really like. Exactly. Well, wow. So. Every, every now and then between all the pissing and moaning, he comes up with something like really profound. Mm. That's yeah. why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> 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 Hang on a minute. We don't know about this. Hey, what, what about in over your head with problems with your motorbike and stuff like that? Has anyone ever experienced that? No. Mm-hmm. No. Nothing comes to mind. Well, I mean, if you think about that, I mean, that happens every now and then. You ride around some, like you you get into a situation when you're riding and, you you know, sometimes you find that, oops, you know, I'm going too fast for this or I didn't expect that or I didn't see that coming or I looked away too long or whatever the case is. So is that what you're talking about, Brian? Yeah, yeah, an an attitude to riding too. I've just come back from Tasmania and in the wintertime, Tasmania is cold, it's wet, there's snow, there's black ice and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I had my, my two uh, boys with me uh, who both ride, and um, they're both a bit nervous about it. But you talk to the local people down there, and they say, oh, yeah, if you go through um, that pass, there's going to be black ice on this side of the mountain, and there'll be signs there for you. So what I'm, what I'm saying, what I suppose I'm saying is that you don't get in over your head with things like um, that you know about. Um my, my eldest boy's very nervous with that sort of stuff, and um, he was really quite um, apprehensive about going through there. And I said, well, the locals have told us it's okay. We know it's there. We just take our time and we get through it. So you're not in over your head if, you're, if you get my drift. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, and I found the local people, when you, when you go and have a cup of coffee and you talk to them about where you're going, what you're doing, they'll tell you what's, what's going on. And and uh, the the road problems that you might face or uh, things like that. So uh, I think as we get older, our experiences of getting in over your head are less. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, you yeah, you do get more you cautious a little bit too. I think you're, you're more aware of what could lead to an issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, I've got a, an example right now where I'm trying to source a front wheel for, for the build on my R90S, a, a, a wire wheel with a 17mm 
Actually, if anyone's out there, he's got one. And I put a few <laughs> <laughs> it slips in as easy as that little plug. Yeah, yeah. That little <laughs> you never know, you never know, Graham. Um, but uh, I, I had something on a, a BMW website, and it's been there for months and months and months. And all of a sudden, I get contacted by someone who says, Oh, yes, I've got one, and it's $240. I thought, Geez, that's cheap. And we started a conversation, and I said, oh, yeah, well, how much for shipping? $48. Oh, where are you? U.S. I'm thinking, there's no way known you can ship a wheel from the U.S. to Australia for $48. Mm. So your antenna goes up straight away. I haven't heard a thing back mm. from that, that those people, you know. Yeah. So I suppose yeah. that's a modern-day um, uh, problem that um, you've you got to face nowadays with the internet. But he also didn't send them the money for the wheel. No, <laughs> good. Well, well, Brian, what about um, what about travel when you're in over your head? What, what's your story? Oh, really? Um, the one that Shirley spoke about with um, at Lake Titicaca uh, with the border crossing and the police is probably the worst example we've we've had. Well, I was thinking when you guys were were in Russia, though. I mean, you ran into another one there. It sounded to me like you were kind of possibly. I think a biker gang sort of um, met up with you and or sort of flagged you down. Well, yeah, but yeah, go on, sure, go. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we were um, riding in a town called Magotcha in Siberia and the weather was lousy and we didn't have any fuel and we had no accommodation for the night and a little car pulled alongside us and said, the driver wound down the window and said, follow Clubhouse. And under normal circumstances, the antenna would have gone up, but we had heard that the Russian bikers um, looked after travellers and they had Clubhouses all through the play, all through the, through Siberia in particular. So we did sort of take a, a punt on that and they took us to their clubhouse and rustic in the extreme, but that was a, they were lifesavers for us. Well, a punt? A punt. What's a punt? Um, take, a yeah. take a chance. Take a chance. Thank you. <laughs> so you took a chance, but, but, but you sort of were, you know, you had a heads up sort of that this may happen, and you, so you weren't all that alarmed by it. Yeah, no, no, we weren't alarmed. Really, we weren't stuck. I mean, we have a tent and we could have camped if we had to. It would have been miserable and cold rather than uh, sitting in a, a rustic clubhouse drinking too much and laughing too much. Well, you know, <laughs> they were great. They fantastic. And I noticed um, uh, some of our friends are travelling through there now and staying with the Magotcha Iron Angels. And they've renovated their clubhouse, I noticed. There's now a very nice mural on the inside of the downstairs doors, which wasn't there when we were there. I don't know if they now have a toilet or running water or any of those other sort of semi-necessary commodities. <laughs> no, no. And I'm just thinking, I've had a couple of bike problems on the road, which have been a bit hairy on occasions, but never really out of my depth. I suppose as a young bloke, I was I was riding a, a seven fifty Honda um, up to um, some uh, six hour bike races we were going to in I think it was about nineteen seventy nine, and I'd wired up a um, a driving light over the top of the headlight cowling, so I thought it's really smart. You know, we're we're going along and we're getting into the mountains and it's foggy and it's on dark, 
and um, the first time I turned on the driving light, it shorted out all the um, wiring in the headlight cow, this smoke coming out of the headlight cow, and we're stuck on the side of the road with no lights. Um, and um, you work your way – luckily, I had a couple of mates with us – and you work your way through that those problems. Does anyone remember ever fixing fuses with silver paper? From cigarette packages. And using a, a cigarette lighter for a, a, a light. So, you know, so um, what we did is we found the uh, the power wire, got power to the bike, uh, hot wired the bike to go, no lights, of course, and I rode it right through the outskirts of Sydney to the um, Amaru Park Castrol bike races, had a great time, and rode home a thousand kilometres with no lights. <laughs> So Brian, was it Brian? Was it was it an Indian that you were riding? No, it was a 750 Honda K2, mate. Actually, right. <laughs> I was just asking because it was obviously sending up smoke signals for help. Oh, <laughs> oh the wiring on that headlight tower was a hell of a mess. <laughs> I've learned how to wire things a little better nowadays. I, I was going to say your lighter for for seeing. Um, I was just going to mention that that's why I one of the reasons that I always carry a Zippo lighter rather than Bic lighters because the Zippo lighter you can pop open, you can light, and you can set it down, and it does just that. It gives you light or it gives you heat to melt something or whatever you need to do. Where and I think we've talked about this before, but then the Bic lighter just gets hot and burns your thumb or burns your pocket when you put it back in your pants. The Zippo goes dry after a week. We've actually got torches. The great great thing about the Zippo is that that you carry the fluid with you, and when it goes dry, all you do is fill it back up. See, with with a butane style, you you never know how much you've got in that can. You shake it around, you have a rough idea, but with the liquid, you can see exactly how much you have. You can say, I've used this much in the past two weeks, if you were somewhere remote, and you can sort of meter it down. I think it works much better. I think you can tell with the butane how much you've got left, and if you're really desperate to get a buzz, you can always use the butane. Ah, so there's another reason. That's double use. How about you, Graham? What do you have for a story? Uh, i got two. Um, both took place in Kazakhstan. Uh, number one, out of my depth, was uh, back when I travelled through Kazakhstan, which I think was nine years ago now, uh, you had to, although it wasn't widely known, register your visa, having gone through the whole border procedure perfectly legitimately, you had to register your visa within a week of arriving in Kazakhstan. It didn't say that anywhere, not on your visa application, not on the visa within your passport. I found out by pure chance on day eight. And uh, so I went, I was in the capital, the new capital, Astana, and went to a big posh hotel where they can register your visa and said, yes, we could do that for you. But Uh, You only have seven days and you've been here eight days, so you can't do it. You're going to have to go to the big immigration building, which all seemed quite daunting. Uh, So long story short, went to the big immigration uh, building. And and the thing about Kazakhstan, the people are spectacular, wonderful, friendly, informed, enthusiastic, hospitable, generous. Some of the best people I've met on the planet as a race. But the authority still has a very stringent and regimented soviet touch to their um to their to to, to their whole demeanor and um this uh, quite nasty lady um i tried to fill out the form it was all in cyrillic i tried to fill it out she threw it back at me and uh, i said what am i supposed to do she said call your embassy 
was like, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? I mean, don't embassies only get involved when you've been found with a significant amount of cocaine up your bottom or something? And that wasn't what was happening to me. So eventually, that's um, what I did. I contacted my embassy. I uh, had to go down there. And it's. It, I tell you what, if you are in a situation abroad where everything seems to be against you, where officials are screaming at you, a language you don't understand, particularly if you're a solo traveller, if all the odds seem to be against you, although they don't advertise that, going to your embassy is like getting a big hug from your auntie or something. (laughs) Because all of a sudden, somebody spoke English, somebody understood, somebody was there. They were completely inept and didn't have a bloody clue but at least they had a flag that I recognised and they spoke the same language as me. Anyway, long story short, uh, a very pretty girl from the embassy the next day came and met me at the immigration building and helped me through the whole procedure of what happens when you stayed in a country, this particular country, without getting your visa stamped. And it was a horrendously bureaucratic process and it was also quite expensive and very, very uh, difficult took a lot of time but um so so story number one is in over your head remember somewhere in that country you've got an embassy and if it all goes completely pear-shaped beyond your control beyond your capability of comprehension remember you've got an embassy and they're there for you and um that's a very reassuring feeling when there's no one else to turn to so that's story number one. Um, story number two was also in Kazakhstan just before I left. And it was in a little town called, um, might be called a Yakaz. And if you've entered Kazakhstan from the east, perhaps come down from um, Siberian Russia or across from Mongolia, that might be your first experience of Kazakhstan and it would be such the wrong impression for me it was my last experience and so thankfully I didn't judge it by that but um, it's a garrison town and it's a nasty hopeless horrid run-down town of hopelessness and drunks and decay and uh, I was there with a couple of other people I'd, I'd met throughout the journey and we were all riding north into Russia and that was, the, I think, the last place or the penultimate place we stayed before before we left Kazakhstan. And um, it really was a, a town of pure hopelessness. You couldn't really restore it to its former glory. It never had any glory. The best you could hope for is to restore it to its former misery. <laughs> and we uh, tried walking these cracked and horrid streets of, of, of pure deprivation to find some supplies and couldn't really find much. So outside this the hotel we were staying in, and it was a hotel is a, a very glamorous road for basically a shithole with some beds. Um, we we stayed we sat outside of these plastic chairs and um, we we gathered together the contents of our panniers to make some kind of meal. But but beer was was readily available and we were drinking and this horrid drunk man stumbled out of the bar we were sitting outside on the dirt in these plastic chairs and was we were far too much interest to him to for him to just ignore and he stood we didn't stand he kind of slouched over us in this like non-vertical position like he was about to fall down from just years of intoxication and was yelling at us in russian and and just 
generally taking what positive vibe we could muster away from the situation. Just a nasty piece of work. This horrible negative vibe merchant who was spitting as he spoke and uh, and just, you know, and then um, <laughs> there's one thing that will just have me spin round with clenched fists. My, my holiest of sanctums is if you pull my hair <laughs> and uh, he pulled my hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I just spun round, yelled at him, and you can't hit an old man. And anyway, I'm on his territory, he's not on mine. And uh, the people who had probably been observing this whole interaction from the bar came out and shouted at him, and he staggered off. But we, we were still the enemy because, you know, we were the intruders, we were the trespassers, we were the foreigners. And, um, and so then... Um, the people I was with, I'd been with for a little while, and I wanted to get the photos that they'd taken. So I wanted them to download them onto, did I have a computer? I think I wanted them on my memory stick, something like that. And um, so we went inside the bar, and uh, it was getting dark now. And so they started downloading them, and the little thing saying, 24 minutes left. And then the old babushka behind the bar said, finished, closed, go to bed. I said, well, we've just got 24 minutes left. Go to bed. And we ignored her. And then these three armed, I guess you'd call them police, but they were like armed sort of security people came in and uh, and then demanded passports and stuff. And at that point, I thought, shit, we're in deep over our heads now. And I've been traveling with these two Austrians and this Swiss guy, and there was no leadership. There was no, um, there was no one person who had asserted themselves. But from nowhere, I just said, Go to your rooms now. <laughs> and we all went to our rooms and they came down the corridors and they're banging on the doors and they're going, passport, passport. And I shout out, nobody open your doors. And we didn't open our doors. And eventually they wandered off because we were probably the biggest excitement they'd had, if not that evening or that week, certainly, you know, for some, some period of time. So that was a situation that could have so very easily gone completely out of control and uh, thankfully, diffusing it and, and remembering who you are and where you are. You are nobody in somebody else's environment. It's no point in saying, I'm an Austrian citizen or whatever you are. Just be humble, be meek and disappear as quick as you can, because this is not where you belong and you are going to be a victim. You're never going to be the victor. So, yeah, two stories of being out of my depth and, and eventually getting away with it. <laughs> What made you think that you were going to get away with just going to your room or, or even just staying there? They're not going to kick the door down and, and drag you out. I don't know, Jim. I think as, 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 uh, as, uh, <laughs> as Brian was saying earlier, I, I think as you get older, you get a level of instinct and you just start to know. Um, the other great thing about getting older is you start becoming older than the officialdom. And I think, you not necessarily can intimidate them, but you just have a little more life experience. So I think it was very much instinct. I, what, and I really don't know where that come from. I'm not an assertive person. I'm certainly not a born leader. But something came out of me that evening. And I just knew that we had to go to our rooms and close our doors behind them, not be antagonistic and not and not uh, bow down to their wishes. And it will go away. And it did go away. It was some kind of insight i wouldn't advise it all the time it came to me that night and it worked that night but you just have to remember in any instant in any country wherever you are that's their country and, and you need to be humble 
I think I, I don't know about humble. I think um, respectful is the word um, for, for me anyway. Uh, but I think the more you travel, the more your instincts get honed, and you you tend to do things on autopilot just because all of those little nuggets of information that you've picked up from all of the different experiences they gel together um, to point you in particular directions, whatever the circumstances may be. And it might be a border crossing. It might be you suddenly um, find yourself and you're looking at a hotel and hang on a minute, there's something not quite right about this place. Okay, let's move on. Whatever it is. I mean, you're in a situation, your instincts were just firing all cylinders, weren't they? Absolutely. And they've never done that before, ever. <laughs> Have they done it again, Graham? <laughs> they might, in a certain situation, they might all fire up again. But, I mean, they did it at the right time, I'll give them that. Yeah, perfect. Because that could have turned really nasty, couldn't it? Oh, it could have been, yeah. You know, because you're in a town of, of boredom. And so anybody who isn't official has actually got someone to, you know, to, to stimulate his night shift. And, uh, it, yeah, it could have gone on and on and on. But luckily it was it was almost a non-event because we retreated and, and, and yeah, showed respect. But, uh, yeah, it's always a good, good one to bear in mind, I think. I had an episode where um, my instinct said, show no respect whatsoever, and that worked for me. Which was... <laughs> To whom? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is this is another illness story. Um, I'd managed to, to clobber some dysentery in India, um, and I was travelling to Kathmandu um, in Nepal to meet up with Birgit, and she'd never been to um, a developing world country before. So you know, this was big time for her, and I'd arranged to meet with her at the airport. And there was no way to contact her because this is before emails and all of that sort of thing. Anyway, um, I was traveling with um, a chap called Carsten who hated Indians. As far as he was concerned, um, all Indians should be killed by the plague and so on. And he just could not wait to get out of India. We ended up um, arriving at a border crossing called Roxall Bazaar. And I was riding, not firing on all cylinders. But as we were coming into this, um, this border crossing, the buildings were just beaten up and you know, nasty water stains running down and paint peeling off and the stench was foul. Um, the road was potholed. There were no signposts and I was just feeling knackered. But it was up to Carsten, who didn't like where he was at all, to find us somewhere to stay. And neither of us had particularly um, strong budget. So he found us somewhere that was just a pit. Um, it was a dark, dank room with mosquitoes that just, you could never kill them all. And for some strange reason, there were fireworks going on right the way through the night, huge bangs. And I was absolutely knackered in the morning. I should have just stayed in bed. But, yeah, that clock was ticking and had to get up into Nepal. So we just rode, rode on autopilot towards the border crossing itself, which was, you know, only sort of 300 yards away, but there were no, no signposts for the officers, so nothing saying customs, nothing saying immigration, um, not in Hindi or, or anything, just no signs. And we managed to ride past them and made it to the border with Nepal and just thought, oh, right, okay, we're going to have to go back and hunt. And eventually we found um, the customs and immigration officers um, not because there was a sign and not because anybody would give us directions and we were asking, but because um, we saw two uniform shirts hanging on nails on a wall outside a building. And there were two men washing themselves under a standpipe on the street where it turned out that these two guys were immigration officers. 
we eventually managed to persuade them to put their shirts on and come into the immigration office and they couldn't have been more unhelpful. They really did not care about dealing with our paperwork so that we could leave the country. The customs officers, um, they turned up late. They didn't care. The man was the key to the cupboard where the carnet book um, was kept. Nobody had a clue where he was or when he'd be back. And we started early because I like to cross border crossings in the early and well, when you're sick, then you tend to be firing on a few more cylinders at that time of day. Well, the first two hours went by, heat was getting up, I'm feeling dizzy, really uncomfortable, and I'm just thinking, I've got to get out of this place, but I'm too tired. And so I just lay on the floor. So I wasn't over my head, but everybody else was. Um, and I lay on the floor and the, the officer's looking over the counter. What are you doing? You can't lie on the floor. Yes, I can. You can't lie on the floor. Well, yes, I can. Um, I've got nowhere else to go and you lot don't seem to know what you're doing. So what else am I supposed to do? I'm going to stay here until and other people milling around and so on. 20 minutes later, the man with the keys to the cupboard, he's there. What are you doing lying on the floor? Oh, waiting for you. I thought you might be another few hours. So I thought I'd have a little sleep while I was waiting. You can't lie on the floor. But I tell you what, another 20 minutes went by and he dealt with all of the paperwork. And we were across into Nepal. And in Nepal, the officers knew exactly what to do. The man with the key to the cupboard was there and he knew what pages needed filling in with what information and we were treated with handshakes and respect and um, it just passed through. And the whole border crossing took about 50, uh, about half an hour. Uh, what a phenomenal response after what we dealt with in India. And we just found that the officials in Nepal were like that all of the time, whereas most of the Indian officials that we came across just wanted to take things very gently and they weren't in a hurry and quite often they didn't really know what they were doing. I didn't get angry with them because a lot of the time that was just purely simply because they hadn't been trained properly. So they were paddling, trying to make it up as they went. But when you're ill, you kind of run out of a little bit of the patience. Um, but of course, that's uh, about half an hour later, riding through Nepal, and what happens? I get run over by a runaway horse and cart. <laughs> Sam, just to round things off, I was going to ask you, what do you what do you do with all these bugs and and illnesses you collect around the world? But I don't, I don't get that sick. <laughs> it's just that I travel a lot, so sooner or later, something's going to knock you. That's true. And I'm really Sam, careful. Sam, be honest. Anything <laughs> that's going around, you get. And anywhere you can drop your bike, you do. <laughs> you've been on the same road. You, you've seen where I've been. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That day, oh, Sam, Sam, we've Sam had was there. share of dropping the bike. But I, I, I have to admit to this, and Mark Carrera, who I bought my bike from, my F800, he's going to laugh because, yeah, I dropped my bike in his garage and I dinged the side of his uh, tool cabinet and, yep, there's an arrow with Sam was here marking the spots. <laughs> Is this your new bike? Yeah. No, I, dro <laughs> I dropped it the, the first day I owned it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you get over that worry about dropping it anyway. You've done it. Yeah, exactly. That was what Mark said. He was very, very gentlemanly about it as he helped me pick it up. <laughs> so nice of him to mark the spot on his tool cabinet where you've dented it. I think that's oh, really was... So everyone can see it whenever they visit. Oh, yeah, he was absolutely insistent. But, hey, I, I dinged his cabinet, so I, I, I had to go along with it. 
So, so why did you drop it, Sam? Was it just a new bike? Yeah, I guess um, the yeah. F800's a lot um, more top-heavy than my R80GS because, you know, the, the R80GS has got the, the big weight of the cylinders down below. And I just was not used to manoeuvring um, a taller bike around. Um, yeah, mm. just got the angle wrong for that millisecond and I probably could have held it up, but I thought, no. Nah. Um, I'm not risking it. Let it fall. All part of I mean, it, take, it takes time to learn a new bike, doesn't it? And um, it always worries me when I see people who climb on a new bike and just go. And I think, oh, yeah, but this bike's got its own personality. You need to learn it. Yeah, it's, I think it's always risky. Some people don't have any problem with it at all when you go into a dealership, you know, jumping on a bike. I'm pretty cautious. I would say very cautious when I'm in a dealership, when I'm sitting on bikes. And I'm, I sit on my bike just about every day. So I mean, I, but I'm very cautious about it. I don't, I don't want to get on some bike that I'm not used to. And, you know, a lot like Granted said, I think there on, on the last episode about the KLR that flopped over in the in the opposite direction of the kickstand because of too much weight. I don't want to get on some bike and find you know that it sinks faster than you expect and the kickstand's down or something. Who knows, right? Every bike's different, that's for sure. And especially yeah. going from something like the R80, the, the BMW opposed twins, to something like the F800, where all the weights up high. I find the F800 to be very top heavy, even compared to my 1200 GS. Mm. Oh, I think it's, it is more top heavy than the than the 1200 GS. Um, but I counterbalance that with how I pack the the panniers. Mm. So there's a, a lot of weight that goes down um, low in those well, panniers, and it makes a massive difference. Yeah, but you do that anyway on every bike, regardless. Well, yeah, right? of course. Yeah, of right. course. Absolutely. Yeah. Any other stories um, about um, being in situations over your head? I don't know about a story, but um, one, I would like to say, you know, when something goes wrong, it is seldom a disaster. And we've talked about this before, but it is usually the beginning, beginning of an adventure. And those adventures, when something starts to go wrong, when you do find yourself over, over your head, when you keep yourself calm and positive and let your instincts work, um, inevitably, that situation that's going wrong turns into some sort of highlight. And it stays a highlight. And I think embrace those situations and just be calm and pay attention and it'll work. It'll be fine. Yeah. If it's not fine, it's not done yet. Yeah. Well, I think you guys had some great uh, great stories there and great information. Um, on to bucket lists. I've never been myself. I've never really been a bucket list person. And I, I thought about this and was thinking about well, what's on my bucket list. And I, and I really try and nail something down. I've, I really have trouble with bucket lists. I, I guess I just don't have these, these things that I, I want to accomplish, but it's very common. And I think it's a, I, I guess sort of disappointed myself that I don't have it because I think it's a great way to spend your life, you know, figure out things that you want to do, plan things that you want to do, you know, try and pick some things, pick some goals, pick some, not that I don't have goals, I certainly have those, but the bucket list itself, I have a, a little trouble with. How about you guys, you know, as, as far as bucket lists, obviously we're not, we're not going to give the GPS coordinates for a place that we want to go because we've been through this with Instagram, et cetera, before talking about that. Um, but maybe it's a place you've been to, you want to go back to. Do you guys have bucket lists like this? Do you do you have a spot where you write down a list of places that you want to go or that you want to go back Jim, to? Jim, I, I I love the concept of having a bucket list. I think it's a fantastic idea, and I wish everybody had a bucket list. Get one. Um, the, the the beauty of a bucket list is that it keeps you focused. There are so many things that are going on in life that can distract us, but if we got that bucket list, that list of things that we'd sat down and we we really like to do. Um, 
we can just keep coming back to it. And when that list is there in front of you, um, the chances are you've got more opportunity to make something happen um, rather than just keep allowing the distractions to get in the way. You know, I'm really glad you said that, Sam, because it, that reminds me of something someone said to me once when we were talking about, um, we're, we're talking about how when you, when you're a kid, everything seems so exciting. You know, you got, if you're, if you're, you know, you follow Christmas, you, you got Christmas coming up and you've got Easter or whatever, you got summer holidays and you've got winter, or whatever the case is. As kids, we have these exciting things that seem to happen, but when you become an adult, those same things take on sort of a, a, a mundane feeling to them. They, they're just not exciting anymore. And that's probably because it's not looked forward to the same as it was. You know, whereas if you had a bucket list, you've got those things to look forward to. You say, you know, like in five years time or two years time or whatever, I think it's a really good point. I think one of the reasons that we we ride motorcycles is because um, we, we, we just don't want anything to be mundane. I don't, uh, I kind of go along with Jim in the, I don't really have a bucket list. Because I think to an extent my bucket list, if you were, changes all the time. And it depends on what I've done and where I've been. But more than anything else, I've come to the conclusion that if you want to do something, you got to set a date. you got to say, I'm going to do this. Whereas it's way too easy to, as you were saying, get distracted by stuff all the time. It's, it's really easy to just kind of go through life, doing your go to work, go home, go away for the weekend, that's it. And you never really have a goal, a destination of, of whatever kind it is, whether it's to do something or to go somewhere. But you need to say, I want to do this. And I think if you just do one, never mind a bucket list, just say, I'm going to do this, whatever it is. I'm going to go to Mongolia, whatever you want. But if you don't do that, you'll definitely never go. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. You just get, because you said, you just get caught up in living. Yeah. You've got to focus. You've got to pick something that's important to you and say, I'm going to do this. My mother with her bucket list. And okay. you, you guys know that she had on her bucket list that she really wanted to see some of the southern Indian Ocean Islands. And this thing just kept on staring at her, um, back at her from her bucket list and until she just said, I've got to make it happen. By hook or by crook, I am going to make this happen. And at age 86, she did. She And that bucket list, wow, fantastic. Mm. Cool. Yeah, well, well I've got to say, um, a bucket list sort of focuses us. I mean, mm-hmm. it started us traveling, actually, when Cheryl's sister um, succumbed to breast cancer. You start thinking about, we called it the what, if onlys. If only we'd have done this, if only we'd have done that. Now, what do you want to do? So then you list down what you want to do and what to try and achieve in your life, and you go about doing it. But it, 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 it's always changing. Um, my bucket list is, you know, I try to uh, do the, the distant travel first up and now closer to home I want to go and ride New Zealand. I want to go up to Cape York in Australia and uh, I've kept Sherl on the long-handled shovel by Sherl wanting to go to Egypt all the time. So that's the last place we'll go that'll, so that'll keep her travelling. Right, uh, now you've let the cat out of the bag. I think it's highly unlikely. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just like one comment you made there about doing the long stuff first. I remember when we left Canada in 87, my mother said to us, why don't you, you, you haven't seen all of Canada. You, you haven't even been back east. Why don't you see Canada first? Well, yeah, because I can do that when I'm 80, huh? You know, I'm, I'm not going to want to do that. I'm not going to want to go to some really remote place. I'm not, man, I want to go to Guatemala when I'm 80, but I can do that now. 
So yeah, exactly, stuff exactly is, right. it's harder now. But but Grant, that that wasn't necessarily logic or, or anything like that's trying to keep your son close to home and don't let him totally. go wander the world. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and Susan's mother, when we left, she said, I, with tears in her eyes, I don't ever expect to see you alive again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Had a lot of confidence. Oh, dear. oh, yeah. I don't think so. <laughs> so I think it's, it's important to, to do the stuff that's maybe a little harder, a little bit more adventurous, and put that at the front of your list. If you're going to have a list, do the hard stuff, do the, the exciting stuff, do the stuff that really gets you excited and, want, and really want to do it. And then... Yeah, you can buy a motorhome and drive around Canada or U.S. or Europe or whatever you want when you're in your 80s. And it's easy. But do the hard stuff now for sure. And Grant was saying something before about um, just getting on and doing it. A bit of advice we were told was when you work out where you want to go, tell people and then you can't back out. Yeah, mm-hmm. we say, we tell people that all the time. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go and do this and this is the date I'm leaving. You have to do it. It's really embarrassing yeah. not to. Yeah. So it focuses you and make sure that you actually have a specific goal of when you're going to do it. I know one guy who said, I'm going to ride around the world. And first he had to do his bike up, which was an R80GS. He now has an absolutely gorgeous R80GS, but it took him so long to do it that he ran out of money and then got found a girl and blah, blah, blah. And he hasn't left. Yeah, so bloody women do it all the time. <laughs> yep, <it's> terrible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, when when I was you guys know, I mean, when I came rode across Europe at the beginning of the big trip, I'd, I'd only just passed my bike test, so I passed that in six weeks, and I took another two weeks to make it down to um, uh, Greece. And when I got to Greece, I'm just thinking, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is absolutely ridiculous. Um, you should really just go home and learn more. But of course, I told my mates in the pub that I was going to ride the length of Africa, so I couldn't go home, could I? I had to get on with it. <laughs> and they laughed at you. So, so, so you really. Oh, I'd never lived it down if I'd gone home. Mm-hmm. That would have been it. And you probably would have never got back on the road either. Um, yeah. Yeah, possibly. You know, because I mean, I mean, if you if you turn, I mean, it's that fall off the horse thing, isn't it? You start to do mm. something, you get scared, you run. Um, that's when you sort of fail yourself, and and then you tend to not want to go back to that point because you know what it felt like when you left. Yeah, I know somebody who I won't name, um, fairly young, I think he was mid-20s or something, decided he's going to go to Europe and spend six months there and tour around and stuff. About three weeks in, he got really sick and flew home. And he hasn't been back. And that was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you gotta just got to get out there and you got to do it. And if you're sick, find a nice hotel and relax and do whatever it takes. But keep going. And first of all, I'm going to go. I'm going to do this. I think that's really important, not just for your friends and embarrassment, but for your own, your mind has to be focused on a specific point. Once you've got that focus, everything that, that uh, prevents you from doing it falls away because you're doing this. This is, this is it. This is what I'm doing. And the rest of it becomes not important. These are all metaphors for life, aren't they? I mean, all, all of this sure. stuff. Graham, I'm, I'm willing to bet you have a bucket list. Uh, yeah, um, the uh, answers I've just been listening to probably a little bit different to what I was thinking. I simply saw it as places I wanted to go to. Well, that's what and it yeah, was. Yeah, of course. 
Okay, right. <laughs> you had it right. <laughs> so, yeah, of course, there's places I still want to go to. Uh, I think probably the stands, um, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. I love mountains and uh, and big, craggy, rocky, snowy mountains. And they eluded me on the trip that was the Eureka trip. And uh, I wanted to, and I still want to do it. And, and now I'm quite lucky living in Bulgaria that it's really not that far away. It's just across the Caspian Sea. So uh, that's probably the next thing that's very high up on my list and, and, and quite feasible, really. It's just uh, time of year because you can't really go before June because you're, the snow hasn't cleared on the high mountain passes. And probably by, I don't know for sure because I've done that much research, but you know, if, if the snow ain't going to clear till June, you can be pretty sure that by September it's going to be coming down again. So you've got a pretty small window for some of those um high altitude passes but that's somewhere that uh, is very high up on the on the list of things i want to go place i want to go things i want to do now i read it as the same as you graham as places we wanted to go and when i was thinking about it brian and i've been really blessed and pushed ourselves or he's pushed me sometimes to do things i didn't really want to do and we've seen so much we're really really lucky but there are still places we either haven't been, like Egypt, which is becoming a bit of a sore point, as you are, as you are all very aware. Um, but there's also, um, as you said, Jim, places we'd like to go back to. I'd love to go back to Iran. I'd love to go back to Antarctica. So there's always something to plan, always places in this wonderful world to see. And it's just, you're right, Graeme, it's about timing. When, when is the best time to go? We've missed out on the um, Transvargasan Pass twice because of bad weather. Both times we've been within Kui of it, it's, it's been closed. And uh, when we've been in Central Asia, there was no snow, but it was so debilitatingly hot. So, you know, those windows of opportunity for some of those places are very small, so you do have to get your timing right. And I am so, so jealous. Stelvio Pass and Glosscroft now, I could do that uh, tomorrow. And you've got it right on your doorstep yes. there, you guys. I could just yeah. ride that, ride that and ride that. No, I was just, in fact, just last month I went over the transfer garrison in the Carpathians and met some Polish guys and I said, you're heading for the, uh, you're heading for the, uh, for the, the transfer garrison. And I said, oh no, there's still, I went, sorry, I went over the transfer Alpina and I said, are you heading for the transfer garrison? No, there's still four metres of snow, it's still closed. And that was in June. So, <laughs> yeah, that was just last month. So there's, um, it, it is uh, and, and it is lovely. And I still, as I think I said before, you know, now having moved to mainland Europe, don't have to book ferries, don't have to book channel tunnels. I can simply get on the bike and I can be somewhere uh, from, and, and, and really Romania, the, the Carpathians are literally half a day's ride away. It's uh, that is a, a wonderful aspect of not living on an island anymore. I'm glad you mentioned the Transfagarison because we have the Romania travellers meeting coming up and the snow will be gone from the passes August 23 to 25. So there's a, a goal and a destination and a really good time to do the Transfigarison. It's only a couple of kilometers from where the event's being held. I've already figured out my route, Grant. Yep. <laughs> good on you. <laughs> well, there you go. Sam, did you say you, you, you didn't say anything about your bucket list? 
But I, I mean, I've got places on the bucket list for sure. And some of the places are places that I would like to go back to. And there are other places that I haven't been to yet. Um, I think the, the top place that I would go back to, and it remains on my bucket list for very good reasons, the Carretera Austral. It's my favourite road. It's a um, long road in southern Chile. And it is just drop-dead gorgeous. And I would go back there like a shot. Um, I really enjoyed riding the Castillo Highway in the Yukon, um, but I gather that most of that's been asphalted now, so it's probably not quite as much fun. The Sani Pass in southern Africa is just amazing to ride, and it's a challenge, and it's beautiful. Um, so I would go back um, to each of those. But um, I haven't been to New Orleans yet. I would love to go to the Car- uh, ride the Karakoram Highway. And having just had um, a very brief taste of Sri Lanka, I'd love to go back and spend a couple of months um, bumbling around, um, exploring the back roads of Sri Lanka on a on a little bike or a little 125cc or something like that. So there are plenty of places on my bucket list. Um, yeah, life's good. Traveling rocks. So do you, when you have one on your bucket list, do you actually make plans? Like you, you, you know, you're, you figure out, okay, this one's most important. I'm going to do this next year or in the next two years, or do you do that? Things filter up towards the top of the list as um, possibilities um, occur. Um, I mean, and Graham will laugh when I say this, but when you're an author, you don't earn a huge amount of money. So you have to make things work together um, to make them affordable to do. And um, so, for example, the things that I want to do in the United States, that works for me at the moment because I'm spending quite a bit of time um, traveling in the United States. So I'm being able to get to these places. So um, just maybe that this fall I'm going to get to New Orleans. Um, and that's been on the list a long time. Anyone else with a bucket list? On my list, I've got written down here, Carrera Astral Parque Nacional in Chile. Mm. <laughs> nice one. I'd go back. I'd go back there tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. It's just stunning down there, isn't it? Yeah. There's so many places. I've got Colombia on my list. I went oh, through yeah. Colombia very, very briefly, but what I did see coming from the south to Bogota, it's ex- absolutely spectacular. Beautiful country, wonderful roads. Um, the people were ama- were amazing. Yeah. Um, we've actually got Colombia's on our list of places to to move to and live. And uh, South Africa, we get back there every couple of years. It's always amazing. Roads are great. People are great. We have a really good time there. Um, I love Namibia, the sand dunes, sausage mm-hmm. flake. absolutely blows me away. I just love it there. Um, and there's lots of other places, places I haven't been. Um, I haven't been to Iran, but I, everything I hear about it, fantastic. I haven't been to Mongolia. I re- that's definitely on my list. Tibet has been on my list forever. One of these days I'll get there. Um, Romania, yes, I got to get to Romania. We actually got a travelers meeting there, so I've got an excuse. But I'll get to a lot of more places. We're uh, not not in uh, travel mode at the moment, but we hope to be there in a few years. We'll do some more traveling and get out and get to some more interesting places. So um, plugs. Let, let's move into plugs. Sure, I've got one. Yay! Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay, Shirley, do you have a plug? I do, I do. Look, it's actually a plug for someone that you know, Jim, but a friend of ours, Michelle, has opened um, the the Chateau Motel in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Michelle Abfair. And the address is Mount Rushmore Road, Custer, South Dakota. 
I'd go there just for the address. But the little chalets in the motel look very, very cute. And she's a great traveller who has um, stuck down her roots again back in her home area in the US. And I think if anyone's going that way, they should pop into the to the little chalet motel in um, Mount Rushmore Road, Custer, South Dakota, and see Michelle. Too right. Michelle's an absolute buzz, isn't she? She uh, is. She's written a great book about her travels. Oh, yeah. she's, she's done a lot of exploring. And I know she worked in hospitality before she hit the road and now she's gone back to it and uh, it looks a really cool place to stay. Well, when she, when I, I heard that she had set her own place up, I thought, yeah, you see, that's, that's travelling. Quite often you go back and you can't get your corporate head back on again, can you? No, and she's, she seems to have it. And, uh, yeah, she's taken a, a risk to take on her own business, hospitality. <laughs> Um, is a really hard game and she's obviously taken a big risk to take this on and she's got the full support of her family and it would be good if travellers who are in that part of the world um, supported her as well. Remembering that if there are some of the best roads in South Dakota, a beautiful part. I haven't oh, been there yet. Snap. I really yeah. want to. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, that's a good point. I've got a little plug that um, is in development. How can I say it? Yeah, I can say that. Um, uh, getting work done, specific work done, can be a problem. Um, there's a guy who runs a little bike shop in the bike industry in Australia. I've got to say he's struggling at the moment. Everyone I talk to is sales are down, nobody's out riding too much, so repairs are down, all the rest of it. My uh, little mate who runs a bike shop is trying to get together and to see if there's enough interest in making uh, header pipes and pipes for motorbikes and stainless steel and stuff like that. He, um, and I think that's a great idea um, uh, because um, there's – and if anyone needs that sort of stuff, please get in touch with me and let me know to see if it's worthwhile him going into business to do this. I'm going to get him to make some header pipes for me, but um, – uh, I think it's it's uh, something that we should all support if we can. Those little sort of uh, pocket industries yeah. are really important to motorcyclists. A BMW designer once told me when I was talking to him about why why is this like this and why are the seats so crappy stock? And he said it's very important for the motorcycle industry that the aftermarket be strong so we don't make a wonderful seat. <laughs> Good yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand it. The aftermarket industry is important. It's all part of getting out there and buying bits and pieces and personalizing the bike to make it the way you like it. So yeah. if the aftermarket's strong, that's good. We have more things to, to choose yeah. from. Yeah, and, and, and Gary, my, my, my guy who runs this bike shop, um, I was looking for header pipes and people were wanting ridiculous money for these things. And he said, oh, look, I can make that and I can do it for this price. And it's about half price. So um, he's looking seriously at getting the machinery in to, to um, make header pipes in particular. So if anyone's out there, please get in touch with us via Roar and I can let him know and uh, I can pass on his details. How about you, Graham? What do you have for a plug? Uh, I've got a, a little thank you first. Uh, I've had three consecutive box set sales from people who have bought the books in, and, and liked the books in the Panya box set and bought them for somebody else as a gift. Like, uh -huh. Let me just run that by you again. They bought them 
for somebody else as a gift. Bear that in mind. Brilliant idea. I really appreciate that. It's a very lovely thing. But my plug is, if ever there was something that didn't need a plug, it was this. But living in Bulgaria, having moved to Bulgaria, the majority of my library didn't travel with me. I only really bought my favourite books. And I've been rereading my favourite books. And um, the one that um, I've just reread currently, actually rereading, is Jupiter's Travels. When did you last read Jupiter's Travels? This is the third time I've read it, and it's the first time I've read it in, it must be over 12 years, because I haven't, the last time I read it was before I did any of my significant motorcycle trips. And rereading it now, having done some significant motorcycle trips, it still remains. Obviously, it wasn't the first overland motorcycle book, but for our generation, most people are listening, it was probably the instigator. And it remains an absolutely beautiful book. It's stunning. It is so well read. There are sentences that stop me in my tracks and have me reaching for a highlighter. They are so eloquent, so articulate. And I'm not name dropping. I mean, I think it's, I've said before, I distribute one of Ted's books here in the UK for him. And I felt compelled to write to him and just say, look, you know, I'm, I'm rereading it. And, and, and I know you hear it from everybody all the time but it still absolutely does it for me. There are some, and I remember him telling me once, you know, he said um, the reason, or in his opinion, it, 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 it kept, it, it continues to be such a, a good selling book is because it's timeless. I wouldn't say it was absolutely timeless because there are aspects of it that are dated. He speaks of traveler's checks. He does mention movies, not necessarily movies that, I'm, uh, that I know. So it's not absolutely timeless, although it's a very good hint and something to bear in mind. If you are writing a book, rather than writing about a current TV show or something that's relevant at the moment, if you want this book to have, if you want your book to have sort of prolonged appeal, try and keep it timeless. But rereading Jupiter's Travels is, is uh, an incredible experience for me. It is absolutely beautiful. It reminds me what inspired me way, way back. As, as it, I think it says on the cover, you know, it, it, it inspired so many people. This book may may provoke you to give up your job and, and go off riding. So <laughs> it certainly doesn't need a bloody plug. But um, Jupiter's Travels, reread it. It's bloody brilliant. Too right. It's a great book. Yeah, it's a good book. But I thought you'd be going to fiction and reading J.K. Rowling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Graham, I'm just sitting here with a bit of a tingle factor going on because one of the photos, I was going through some photos just before the show, and guess which photo um, popped up? That one of you, me, and Ted at Horizons Unlimited in Derbyshire the first year that you were there um, and book signing. Oh, I remember that so clearly. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, how did this photo just pop up and then you talk the way that you did about Ted? I thought, That's lovely. <laughs> And that moment as well, I was quite, quite starstruck at the time. So there was Ted Simon on one side of me and, and there's some bloke called Man, Sam Manick on the other side of me. And, yeah, he was the scruffy bloke. <laughs> and posing for the photo. And, and this is my first book, you know, my first event. It was my third, no, it was my second event as, 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 a, as an author. And um, 
and they all stood and posed holding my book and Ted's standing there totally playing for the camera going this is the best book I've ever read in my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we got a photo of um, Ted at the Overland Expo sure remember yeah. that sitting in a chair with Al Jesse and us um, with two glasses of Australian red wine, I think. Uh, one bottle and one, one glass. One bottle, one glass, that's right. <laughs> Ted in his natural, natural environment. Yeah, indeed. Sam, what have you got? Oh, I've got lots happening. Um, the next event that I'm going to be at is um, the Overland Magazine event in the UK, and that's on between the 29th of August and September the 1st. And I really like this event. It's such a good atmosphere there. Um, but then I'm over to the States again. And um, at the moment, there's just one chance that I may have another booking that will come in before this one. But um, at the moment, it's not confirmed. So the first booking that I have in the States is um, in North Dallas, Texas. And what a brilliant way to start a tour. It's on Friday the 13th. Um, so anybody dares to come out and ride their bikes on Friday the 13th, come and see us. I'll be at motor BMW Motorcycles of North Dallas on the 13th. Is there a month on that? September. Yep, September. Um, and then I'm over at Adventure Motorcycle and Motorsports in Pensacola on the 21st of September. That's a Saturday evening. And then I'm up to um, Pandora's Euro European Motorsports in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And that's on September the 24th, which is a Tuesday. And then I'm across to Motorcycles of Charlotte in North Carolina for October the 2nd. That's a Wednesday and then up to Overland Expo East. And guess who's going to be there, guys? Mr. Ted Simon. He'll be there presenting and book signing. So it'll be brilliant to see him again. It's going to be buzzy, buzzy, buzzy six weeks. Wow, you, you, you got to be pretty stoked to head right back and ride your bike again. This is what's bringing it all on, isn't it? A bike to ride. Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting back to that bike and I've got one or two other bits and pieces that um, I can add to it now. Um, do you know, just super stupid, simple little things like um, those L-piece um, angles that you can put um, over your, um, your your valve for it, making um, inflating your tyres easier. And I found a really nice one over here for it. And just little things like that that you've got to add to your kit. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be great. And, yeah, what a fantastic time to be riding through um, Texas and New Mexico and um, Louisiana and um, Tennessee, um, North Carolina, um, then up into Virginia, um, September, October. Yeah, it's going to be good. Your 800 has to be way over-accessorized compared to your R80. Um, the, the difference is with the R80, with Libby, um, a lot of the things have been handmade and learned over the years. Um, I, you know, I had BMW panniers on the bike in the first place and I dropped the bike. Yes, surely I dropped the bike. Um, <laughs> so, so many times I trashed these things. So eventually, um, my aluminium panniers were made by an 80 year old Australian millionaire in his shed, um, in surface paradise. And I, the things about Libby is that everything that's on that bike has a story that's attached to it. But the difference is with the F800, I know what I'm doing now. 
I know what equipment I want. I know what it's got to do and I know how it's got to fit and all of those sorts of things. So it's been an absolute joy being able to use that knowledge and experience to fit out this bike. Um, and it's, it's making it into an absolute buzz to ride. Does it have a name, Sam? Well, I'm pretty sure that she has got a name now, but um, I'm going to go back and ride with her um, for a little bit longer to see whether she likes the name. Cute. I know, I'm, I'm soft, aren't I? I, I no, that is. It's lovely. It's just how it works. Oh. Well. You others should take a leaf out of Sam's book. Well, well, big softy. In, in, naming yeah. our, in naming our bikes or being a softy? Just, just being a softy. Mm. You guys have got big red. Exactly. Oh, yes, big red. We, we, I had to um, get a valuation done on big red. Oh, this is embarrassing. Yeah. Don't tell this story. <laughs> <laughs> now you've got to tell it, bro. Of course. It's a good story. I can tell already. I, you know, I, 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 you know, I lashed out and I bought Big Red brand new and uh, to travel and all the rest of it. And she's been a fantastic bike. And I've just completed 16,135 kilometres travelling around the country, barely a problem. And um, so I go to the BMW dealer to get a valuation. I need a, a proper valuation because I'm transferring it. It's, it's complicated. complicated, but it's tra I'm transferring it to my name. Anyway, um uh, Ron, uh, the salesman, came out and had a look at Big Red as I'm looking over the, the brand new shiny things with, you know, push button this, push button that, cruise control this, and, you know, do this and it won't happen, all that sort of shit. And um, he, um, he he came back and he said, well, I'll give you $500 for it. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I feel for you. About halfway into the eight-year trip, um, I needed to get a new carne, and I took um, Libby to um, a BMW dealership um, and said, right, can you give me a value on the bike so that I can get the carne done? And the, the, the mechanic came out, and he said, ah, I couldn't even put a price on it. Crocker shit, mate. I wouldn't go on it. <laughs> <laughs> what? Oh, that's cruel. That is cruel. <laughs> Your carnage cheap, really cheap. They well, always low valuation for a carnage. And she's only done 187,000 miles since then, so. Yeah, well, that, well, I've got 292,000 kilometres, so, yeah, yeah, it's pretty nice. good. Nice, nice. Well, that wraps it up then, everybody. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you. Bye. Bye. Cheers. I didn't get a plug. I was going to ask you. I thought, no, no, I already asked Grant. You know, I told you. I'm getting old. I'll make it real short. I'm getting old. Let me back it up. So, Grant, what have you got for plugs? Not much. <laughs> no, I do have a couple things. Um, I just want to remind everybody to go to vimeo.com slash horizons unlimited to get the downloads of the DVD series. The Achievable Dream series has been out for, well, must be seven years now, and it's absolutely timeless. We were very careful when we created it to make sure that it would be timeless and we weren't specific about, oh, you must have this bike, you must have this accessory. It's more which, what kind of things work and what doesn't work. Um, trying to be more flexible and more about helping you learn and understand the questions you need to ask when you look at a new gadget 
what's going to work, what's not going to work. So that's the horizonsunlimited.com, uh, sorry, vimeo.com slash horizonsunlimited to get those downloads. And of course, we still have a few DVDs left and we will continue to have them, but a lot of people like downloads now. So that's available and the prices are really, really good on it. Plus, of course, we have all the HU events coming up. We're going to be at a couple of events in the next couple of weekends, which will be passed by the time you hear this. But uh, Mongolia, August 2nd to 4th. Montenegro, August 8 to 11. Switzerland, August 15 to 18. Romania, August 23 to 25. So that's a busy month. And then into September, we've got Latvia, Italy, France, Hags Bank Mini. And uh, back into North America, we've got California. Oh, then we're jumping down to Bolivia for a mini meeting there. And Germany, South Africa, Ecuador. And that's it for, 20, for 2019. Wow. How many are you going to? Uh, we're going to do the two in the coming week, two weeks. And then that's it for the year, unfortunately. You just don't have time or there's only so many, there's only so many events you can get to. I mean, I know a lot of people think, oh, you're going to be at all the meetings. Well, I really wish we could, but <laughs> there's just no way. Sometimes we have two and last year, I think we had three events, same weekend, three different continents. So no, we can't get to them all. And there just isn't enough money to do it either. And it just, it's just too tiring. So we do the ones we can, and we try and hop around and hit different ones. Um, we'll see. We'll do what we always do what we can. Well, but, it certainly uh, sounds like a, a busy summer. And um, Oh, yes. I think, that's, I think that wraps it up now, doesn't it? Did we get everybody there? I think we did. I think we did. All right. Wonderful. And I can't believe how long we talk. You, you guys are really long-winded. We're, we're over two hours now, I think. But... Um, Hey, that's what happens when you get... There's, there's some guy that keeps saying something and he keeps asking questions and he keeps pushing us to say something else. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's spelled J-I-M. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone. Hey, Bye. thanks, Jim. Thanks. See ya. Bye. See ya. See ya, everybody. Pleased to have the support of Fresh Tracks. That's freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. Thanks to my co-host Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK, has four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. Drop by his website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from down under. Of course, in Australia, they've also published books on their motorcycle travels, and you can get them anywhere. You can get eBooks from their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. Graham Field lives in Bulgaria. He's the author of both books and audiobooks that chronicle his journeys. As well, Graham has t-shirts and his box set and all kinds of other things at grahamfield.co.uk. And of course, Grant Johnson, he's from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub literally for our motorcycle community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of connected travelers from around the world. They also put hub meets on around the world and the hum. See a worldwide list of hub meets at Horizons Unlimited. 
adventureridersradio.com. And we would love your support for Adventure Rider Radio and Raw. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and click on the support button. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your pannier, your toolbox, wherever you want to put it. Anything $50 or more gets you a mention on this show. And we would love it if you consider becoming one of our patron supporters that uh, goes on monthly. And we've got some uh, some extras for that as well. Again, drop by the website. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. See you next month on Raw. Raw.